There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 34. Today in the show, we're joined by my friend Tyler Reidenauer of Antler Geeks, and we're talking public land hunting. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. And as I mentioned earlier, today in the show, Dan and I are being joined by my good friend, Tyler Reidenauer. So welcome to the show, Tyler. How's it going, guys? Good. It's going It's going pretty well here in Michigan. Dan, what about you? It's going good in Iowa. Um, yeah. I got a, the right off the bat, uh, Tyler... Did you or your buddies ever call you Rhino, like in high school, or did they give you, ever give you a nickname? <laughs> they, they didn't. There was a lot of plays on the last name, but Rhino is, is one I haven't heard, actually. Wow. <laughs> well, well when go. we become friends later on in life, um, I'm going to call you Rhino. All right, fair enough. Is that cool? <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Uh, well. All right, continue, Mark. Uh, I was great. Thank you. Thank you for getting the important stuff out of the way, Dan. <laughs> So uh, I got to say, it's nice to have a fellow Michigan hunter on the line with me. I'm so used to having to talk to Dan, who's uh, spoiled out there in Iowa. So Tyler, thanks for being my uh, my Michigan company today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh, we've, we, we've got a lot to cover, that's for sure. <laughs> sure do. So you know, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Tyler, you're a member of the Antler Geeks team. Um, but to kick us off here, before we really dive into anything else, for those that aren't familiar with Antler Geeks, can you give us a quick rundown of what you guys are all about? Yeah, sure. Um, Tony Hansen and I started Antler Geeks uh, four years ago, and we had uh, been filming, you know, for a number of years for uh, another uh, another outlet, and we just kind of felt like it was time to to do our own thing. Um, you know, there's we don't have anything against you know guys that hunt you know, big managed farms and, uh, you know, the, you know, the guys on TV that hunt with outfitters every week, but it's, there was just something missing, you know, in, in outdoor media. Um, you know, and that's 
public land, you know, stuff that guys can really relate to. Um, and that's what we've taken and ran with. And it's, it wasn't like we changed what we did. You know, we didn't, we didn't start hunting differently. We've always hunted public ground. We've always hunted small pieces of private that we, you know, we happen to get permission on, um, you know, out of all the pro staff guys, uh, you know, hardly any of us own any ground, um, or lease any ground. So it's, it's really hundred percent DIY. Um, you know, that's our focus. We've got, uh, you know, daily content on antlergeeks.com. We do a web series on uh, realtree.com. We have a digital publication uh, that's also 100% devoted to DIY whitetails. Um, So that is, you know, in a a nutshell, it's it's DIY whitetail hunting, um, you know, how everybody else really hunts. Um, So, so that's, that's the focus of it. It's a lot of fun. Um, It keeps us hopping and, uh, if you follow along, you uh, you get to see the ups and the downs <laughs> with yeah. that are you know reality of deer hunting. So, yep, that's and that's the truth. There's a lot of ups and downs, aren't there? <laughs> oh, too many sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah. uh that's a perfect segue for what I what I wanted to talk about next. Now that we've got a good idea of what you know Antler Geeks is. Is, you know how has your season been going so far, Tyler? I've I've watched some of the episodes so far, and just knowing you, I know a little bit. But for everyone out there, you know what have you been doing so far in fall 2014? Put any big deer on the ground yet? No, I was fortunate enough to kill one buck on public ground in uh, Dan's home state of Iowa. Uh, fortunate enough to draw a non-resident tag there, and uh, shot a buck there on November 9th. And nice. other than that, it's uh, it's been kind of a slow season for me. Uh, I had two trips to Kansas, and uh, one at the end of October, and then one in the middle of November. I actually went straight from uh, that hunt in Iowa back to Kansas, and uh, wasn't able to fill a tag there. And honestly, other than those two, uh, you know, those two out-of-state hunts um, that have been between three different trips, it's been one of my slower seasons. Um, I've hardly hunted here at home. Uh, you know, typically. I spend quite a bit of time in Michigan, um, kind of that non-prime time. Usually when things are really good, I, you know, I head out of state. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, <laughs> as you know, Mark, the grass yep. is a little bit greater on the other side. I'm right there with you. Uh, so, uh, but this year, yeah, actually I lost uh, one of my main pieces of ground that I'd hunted um, the past couple of years here in Michigan, and just lots going on, um, you know, remodeling a house and whatnot, so... Uh, so it's just that's kind of been a slow year as far as hunting goes for me. I mean, still got plenty of time in the stand, but uh, it's been mainly just in those those out of state trips, and that's been about it. And we do have one uh, one trip coming up. Still, we're going to Indiana, uh, Tony and I, to hunt their muzzleloader season, and that'll kind of round out the year for me. Um, so it's can't complain. It hasn't been a bad year at all. Um, Fortunate enough to hunt some really big deer in Kansas. Just didn't get one on the ground and. Uh, Iowa was great as always. So. Yeah, it's hard to beat that, isn't it? Yep. Now I think uh, Tony got a buck out there in Kansas, right? He did. Tony shot a buck. Um, he was out there while uh, in November when I was on my second trip there. Um, he shot a buck, and uh, Adam Millard shot a buck uh, the same day that I shot mine uh, in Iowa. Uh, and Tony's son Noah actually shot his first buck ever. Um, with a bow at that, uh, here, here in Michigan the same day. And Josh Honeycutt, one of our other pro staff guys down in Kentucky shot a buck the same day. So November 9th was, <laughs> was a very good day for the Antler Geeks crew. 
So. <laughs> I'd say so. I uh, gosh, I couldn't. Uh, you can't argue with that. We had um, a couple of my friends shot between me and two other friends. We shot deer three days in a row um, from the sixth, seventh, and eighth. But but haven't pulled off the four in one day yet. So that's pretty impressive. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know if we'll do it again, but it was <laughs> it was it was fun. That was for sure. So, yeah, so when are you heading to Indiana? Uh, we'll be there the middle of the month, uh, somewhere sixteenth, seventeenth, I believe. We're going to head down, um, and that'll be uh, that'll be a new experience for us. Tony and I, uh, neither one of us has has hunted Indiana in the past, and we'll be hunting a piece of ground that you know, we really haven't spent any time on. Tony's never been there, and I shed hunted it for one day in the spring um, with uh, Ryan Reitzman, one of our uh, one of our other guys from here in Michigan. And so that's really the only, you know, the only knowledge I have of the place is in the little bit I got to look at that day while shed hunting. And we may go down for a quick one-day trip to, to scout before the hunt. Um, but that's that's the uh, the situation we find ourselves in a lot of times. You know, when we go to we go to new states or we go to new places, um, you know, we we just get, I guess, impatient or uh, looking for the next best thing. Uh, I guess would be a good way to put it. Uh, trying new spots out. You know, a lot of times we show up in places that we've never hunted before, um, places you know, states we've never hunted even, and uh, you know, we'll hunt for a week or ten days and. Sometimes it goes good, and sometimes it's it's strictly a learning experience. But uh, so yeah. Now, as you're talking about, you know how you show up at these random places out of state sometimes and hunt for ten days or whatever and try to figure out. It reminds me of a story you told me a few years back. So I don't remember the exact details, but correct me if I'm wrong and elaborate if you can. But is it true or not that you lived? in a tent on public land in Iowa for like a month or something, hunting out of this little tent in the middle of nowhere? <laughs> I did. I, I took a, I was still in college then, and I took, uh, so that was about, that was about seven years ago, and I took a semester off of school and uh, actually went to Alaska and did a hunt with my dad and my grandpa up there, which was awesome. And uh, since I had the whole rest of the semester off, I decided I'd, would deer hunt every day, um, and I had an Iowa tag that year. So yeah, I I stayed in a tent in a month uh, for a month uh, in Iowa, and uh, I'd go into town you know, every couple of days and get a shower at the the local truck stop, and I became as became known as the man who lives in the tent. So <laughs> all the locals thought I was a little bit weird, uh, but it's paid off. Uh, you know that I know that piece of public ground probably better than than any piece of ground other than. Uh, you know the chunk, the chunk that my parents own that I grew up on, but uh, so it's it was fun. <laughs> One of those things you can probably only do while you're a college student, and yeah. uh, I enjoyed it. So. Oh man, that does sound awesome. He's living the dream, isn't he, Dan? Yep, sounds like it. Well, a college student, or you got a divorce. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he had the better the better end of the deal on that one. <laughs> right, right. Um, while we're on the topic, not of divorce, but uh, Dan, have you gotten a chance to get out hunting anymore? Nope. No, I have not. I have not had a one chance. Like I said, I, when it comes to my vacation, I throw all of my eggs into one basket, uh, over that two week vacation time. And then, uh, kind of put the family on the back burner for a little bit. And when that's over, it's pretty much over. Um, this past weekend, just a little bit of an update. I got two bits of information 
I, I got some good news and I got some great news. Okay. The good news is that um, I think, as you may know, my wife is expecting, and we found out it was going to be it's going to be a boy. Yes, congratulations. So that's the good news. Now the the great news is that she is going to allow me to go back and hunt two weekends in a row late season. Ooh. <laughs> so that almost tops the, the <laughs> hey, your son's healthy. He's going to, everything's just fine. I'm like, all right, I got two more weekends to try to get it done. Oh, so man. that is really good news. Yeah. So who knows what'll happen late? Se- you know, the shotgun hunters are going to come through and just crush everything. And it typically, the property that I hunt goes to sleep after that. And, and, uh, once that's, uh, well, it's, I don't know. It's, it's hit or miss. Yeah. Well, you know, I was, I was actually thinking about this, um, for some reason about your late season hunting opportunities. And I got to thinking, you know, you know, on the, some of the properties that you hunt, we did find a good number of sheds and, you know, indicating that there was a good amount of deer still hanging out there in the winter time period. So right. I don't know. I mean, there's a chance, right? Right. I'm still determined to get that shed back from you. <laughs> that's that's Tyler. The, the story on that is that I found a really nice big, like 65 inch shed on one of Dan's properties this past spring. Um, but Dan's rule is that if he kills the buck, he gets that shed back. So <laughs> he's got some major incentive for you to hand that over. Exactly. Right. Right. <laughs> I just gotta, I just gotta find him. Well, I hope you do. Uh, as much as I want to keep that shed, I, I do hope that you find the buck that you've named Mark Kenyon because he's a son of a gun. <laughs> he's a sidewinder. That goes for both of us, I guess. <laughs> well, uh, I guess now that we've kind of ran all over the place with this, you know, Tyler, as I mentioned earlier, you know, what I was really hoping to do was pick your brain about what you just talked about doing, which is hunting public land. And you do it just as much as just about anyone I know. So I figured you'd be a great guy to talk to about this. And there's so many people out there that that can relate to this because this is their only hunting opportunities is hunting the public land that everybody else can hunt. And it's a huge challenge, but it also can be you know tremendously rewarding to kill a deer off of some of these tough-to-hunt places. Um, and you've done it time and time again. So I've got a lot of different questions that me and Dan wanted to um, run by you and, and really get your get your insight on it and maybe hear some of your different stories of the successes you've had across Kansas, Iowa, or wherever. Uh, but maybe to kick things started, maybe just starting at the very beginning, um, you know, when you're starting this process of saying, okay, I'm going to hunt in a certain state and I'm going to hunt public land. How do you, how do you go about finding public land and determining if it's, you know, high quality enough and a piece that has enough potential that you would want to hunt it? How do you start that? Most of what we do, a lot of times, the only scouting we do before we show up, it's it's all on the computer. Um, you know, there's so many assets now, and you know, with all this, you know, all the state, you know, game game divisions, um, you know, they they all have the public lands listed on, you know, on their their government website for the most part. Um, so you can get an idea right there of kind of where they're located. Um, you know, the acreage. Um, I guess the biggest things we look for when you're just looking for a piece of ground initially is, you know, we try to stay at least an hour away from any, you know, major city center. Um, it's just a lot of times you end up, <laughs> you know, in a little dinky town in a, in a sleazy hotel somewhere, but um, you get away from the town and, uh, you know, there's a lot less, a lot less people there. Um, 
that's the big, you know, the big thing, I guess, initially. Um, and then just picking them apart, you know, I mean, looking for the same types of things that you would look for on, you know, really any piece of ground, um, pinch points that are leading in, you know, in and out of the public stuff that's on the borders and, uh, looking outside of the public land too is a, you know, a, a big piece of it. You know, you can't just look at that one chunk, um, you know, maybe a chunk of timber that's, 2,000 acres, and there may not be a single stitch of crop on it, but if you can find where there's crops right on the border in certain places, you know, especially early season, late season, um, it, it gives you an idea where you can, you know, you can at least get close to those deer that are on feeding patterns. Um, you know, as far as states go and regions of the state and stuff like that, um, th there's always those famed counties, um, you know, I guess in really every big buck state and I try to avoid them. Um, you know, if coming from Michigan, all of Kansas is better than, <laughs> is better than home. Right. All of Iowa, for the most part, is better than home. Um, you know, sure, there's certain little pockets and little regions of those states that are, you know, the absolute, you know, best of the best. You know, they kill the most booners. They kill the most, you know, there's the most 200-inch deer that have come out of that county, whatever. Um I'm happy with shooting 140 or 150 inch deer on public ground. Um, you know, and a lot of times that next county over that nobody ever says anything about is just as good, really. Right. So don't, uh, I guess, don't take some of that stuff to heart too much, and uh, don't be afraid to to venture out away from those well-known areas a little bit. So, so I, so after you've you know looked on the maps, you found out what area you want to hit. Are you going there preseason? Um, or are you just showing up at the hunting season and, you know, jumping right into the timber? It's, it all depends. You know, I guess sometimes if we're close enough and we can, you know, it's reasonable to drive there in the preseason, we can. Um, you know, like where we go in Kansas is, you know, it's 18 hours away. So it's, it's tough to, you know, to make that kind of a drive, uh, you know, in the, in the summer, just the amount of time that it takes you to get out there and get back. Um, it, there's usually just too much going on, you know, with life to, to be able to carve out that kind of a time time frame to get out there and scout. Um, you know, we went to North Dakota a few years ago and never set foot on anything until we got there. It was just all, you know, on the computer beforehand because that was a, you know, 20-some-hour drive. Um, closer play, you know, Indiana. Um, like I said, I went down there last winter um, shed hunting just for a day at least to get a, you know, a little bit of an idea of what it was like because it's a close enough drive. And, you know, Ohio, you know, we've, we've spent a fair, you know, fair number of days back and forth from there, you know, scouting different places. So it, it just all depends, I guess, on location. So can you, can you elaborate Tyler for us on exactly in these instances where you do actually go in person to scout, whether that be, you know, in the spring or summer, or maybe you show up at the property in the fall and you and you want to do some scouting before actually hunting. Can you walk us through what that scouting looks like? You know, what are the things you are looking for? What are you trying to identify? What are you trying to learn? Well, I mean, aside from, you know, what you'd look for really on, on any piece of ground, um, the big things we look for is, you know, where the parking areas are. Um, a lot of these public land areas have maybe, you know, mountain biking trails or equestrian trails or, or some other, you know, type of trail system where hunters can use those to access, you know, and get farther back in a lot easier. Um, and I, you can do it from home a lot of times, you know, even if you can get a hold of, you know, the, 
the little offices a lot of times at the, the piece of public ground or the, the state forest, whatever it is, um, they'll have little brochures and stuff a lot of times at the facility that have those trails on them. And they're hard to find online, but if you call them up, they'll send you one of those brochures so you can study it in the off-season. And I'll actually go through, make a map on Google Earth once I've you know, committed to a property, and I'll put all those trails in and I'll put all those parking areas in. And then you kind of you know, make a radius of where other people are going to go, and then you find those little pockets that are, you know, that are too far away. Um, you know, or maybe there's some type of terrain feature, you know, a river or, you know, some really, really steep stuff that most guys aren't going to go, you know, past um, and find those little pockets that are a lot of times not hunted at all. Uh, you know, there's, if you find a big enough piece of public ground or even just the right one that's got those kind of land barriers, um, you know, you can, you can essentially have private ground, stuff that's hardly ever hunted because nobody wants to go that far. Are you using trail cameras on public land? We do. Um, it's, you know, I guess it depends where it's at. There's certain spots where maybe they're they're too far for us to even want to go get them, you know, like on a, a scouting trip. Um, and then sometimes they're a little bit too close to a trail or something like that, and you kind of gamble with them getting stolen. And I've probably had as many stolen as I, you know, more than I own <laughs> right now. <laughs> Um, but it's just it's just part of the game um we definitely don't buy expensive trail cameras it's always been kind of a joke between me and tony to to try and find the best hundred dollar trail camera on the market <laughs> because we don't really want to spend much more than that on them because you know they they seem to disappear pretty quickly so hey i got a, a real quick question while we're on the topic how and I, I've never really hunted public land a lot, so I, I guess I've never run into an issue like this. How do you I, not necessarily communicate or how do you deal with other hunters hunting the same areas that you hunt? Um, whether it's, you know, they're interrupting your hunt. I know you're always going to, you know, I, I bet you run into some real dandies out there. But how do you, how do you deal with a situation like that? Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER.
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself. And you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. You know, you just hope that the guy is, you know, is level headed, you know, to a point. And if it's later in the year, you know, if it's been a tough season, sometimes I've got to remind myself to, you know, try to keep my cool. Um, <laughs> but it's, you know, just trying to just lay out where, you know, where he is, you know, where he's hunting or, you know, where they're looking to hunt, whatever it may be. Um, you know, I'm just trying to give each other some respect. Um, a lot of times I, I'll give in, honestly. Um, I, I look for those spots where nobody else will go, and a lot of times if somebody else shows up, I, if I have a stand-up, I'll go pull it. You know, I just I get out of there, and I'll I'll go find another spot. Um, that's the beautiful thing about hunting public land. you got a lot of options. <laughs> so you can always drive to another place and, you know, and start the, start the whole game over again. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's tough to deal with sometimes, especially, you know, if you've got a spot that you know is, you know, is really good and, maybe some guy just, you know, kind of wanders upon it and, you know, didn't do all the homework. He just happened to, to wander that direction that morning with his climber or, or whatever it may be. Uh, it, it can be extremely frustrating, but, you know, it's it's just part of the game and you learn to deal with it. And one of those things, if it does happen and you end up shooting a buck on that trip, it's it's that much more rewarding because it was another, you know, yet another obstacle you had to, you know, had to deal with and, and overcome, so... Yeah, so so Tyler, I just watched the most recent episode of Antler Geeks in which you were hunting this public land in Iowa and a situation kind of similar to what we're talking about arose here. You, know, you showed up at this property and there was a whole bunch of hunting pressure where you weren't expecting it. Um, can you walk us through maybe that example um, of how, you know, what happened and how you adjusted? Because I think that'll be helpful for people to see, you know, an example of how you can you know, adjust for that hunting pressure on public land and, and still have success. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that piece of ground I'd hunted in the past and we've got, you know, one of those little spots that we look for where nobody will really go. It's too far from the parking areas. It's too far from the roads, um, you know, for most people to walk into. Um, and there's a river on the other side of it. And that river's always been really high. So I went this year with, waders and 200 feet of rope and uh, rafts and whatever we needed I had it um, <laughs> to make sure that we could get across that river because um, it's a, it's actually a very easy access point if you're willing to cross the river um, we got there and it was 
you know, mid-calf high, and there was other guys crossing it in rubber boots, and I'd already had a set hung there. We went out um, early in the season and, uh, you know, and got our stand hung, and, I mean, that that was the spot. I was I was pretty much all in. That was that was the tree. You know, I'd been look, looking forward to going back to that exact tree, you know, since last time I drew an Iowa tag, and we showed up, and, yeah, and there was just, you know, it was lined with trucks, and there was all kinds of guys in there. Um, I actually went into just a set. We had another guy walking down, you know, they're walking down the deer trails and it's just, you feel like pounding your head against the tree, but <laughs> what can you do? So we backed out and started kind of looking at the deer sign. There was, uh, standing corn on the neighboring property and the deer were using that a lot coming to and from, and the deer trails at all kind of diminished the deer sign right there where all those guys were coming in. So I slid down the river and, the, you know, pretty much found where the deer had adjusted to, you know, to the hunting pressure. Um, those deer had really never been hunted like that since I've been going there. Um, you know, that's, I've been hunting that place for seven years ago. It was the first time I'd, I'd hunted it. And uh, so, I, you know, they, they adjusted, and I just I had to adjust with them and slid down the river and, you know, kind of did some spur-of-the-moment scouting, and, you know, we got a stand-up, and our first full morning in there, uh, I, I killed them, so... Jeez. So it's just, uh, just you know, I guess not getting overly frustrated where you completely pull out. I knew it was a, I knew it was a good spot, and there's there's always a lot of good deer in there. Um, you know, just take a step back and kind of figure out what the deer, you know, what the deer have done. They had obviously responded to the pressure, and uh, we just had to figure them out. So yeah, I guess in that instance, we we did use a an observation stand um, for our actual first set set up and you know, kind of looked into where I thought most of the deer had kind of moved their, their river crossing to. And, uh, you know, we saw a lot of deer a ways off that morning and then we went in and hung the set from there and, uh, it ended well. So, yeah. So is that observation stand, um, tactic, something you employ often on these public land spots when you're still trying to learn a new area, or is that something that just in this case seemed like a good idea? It's something we, at least that I use a lot. Um, and as <laughs> I actually use them as much to see where other hunters are are accessing as much as I do to see where you know how the deer are using the ground. Um, you know, a lot of times you'll see four or five trucks at a parking area, and there's a you know maybe one trail that leads off from it. And I'll I'll set up where I can see a lot and see where those guys are going, maybe to to give me an idea where the hunting pressure is, and then I'll use that you know to adjust. Um, so it's you know that's another big piece of it, I guess is you know, it's figuring out where the hunting pressure is and scouting other hunters as much as, you know, you scout the actual deer. So, yeah, definitely. Now stay on the topic of stands. Um, you mentioned in this, this year in Iowa, you had gone and set a stand and, and left that there until you came back later. Um, are you, you know, depending on where you're going and, you know, where you can, where you can't, are you typically trying to go into these public spots and hang stands early on or at least prep trees beforehand? Or are you typically going in with just some portable stands or climbers and just, you know, going in there and running and gunning as the trip progresses? Yeah, more or less, we just, we hang it when we get there. Um, that was just kind of a rare instance, honestly. Um, I happen to know that, you know, that piece of ground well enough in Iowa and then I'd hunted that area enough that I, I knew the tree that I wanted to be in. Um, so we went in, you know, we went out there this summer and, and did a little scouting and, and, uh, and got that hung, um, right. It was actually the, the first weekend you could legally hang a, 
Hank stands out there, um, went out and got it done. So it really gave me something to look forward to at least, but <laughs> never actually sat in the tree. So, yeah, I, I imagine that was pretty frustrating. It was, but, uh, like I said, it's just, you gotta, you gotta learn to shake it off. Um, and I think, you know, that's a lot of people have a hard time with that. You know, guys that do hunt public land, you know, they, you know, you get frustrated and it's, it is frustrating. There's no, there's no two ways around it. It's hunting, you know, hunting public ground is, is it's a frustrating deal. Um, but you just learn to deal with it, I guess. And the more you do it, the thicker your skin gets. So, <laughs> yeah. So are you bouncing around a lot, uh, when you're on these, on, on these trips or, um, or and what kind of tree stands are you using that allow you to move, uh, freely? Um, I guess as far as bouncing around, um, Usually, like a, a first trip somewhere, um, if it's a piece of ground we've never hunted before, I'll I'll cover a lot of ground. Um, you know, I don't get too hung up on one stand location. I try to try to cover as much of the area, uh, you know, that I've, you know, that I think is is worth hunting, um, as I can to get an idea, you know, what it's like, how the deer use it. Um, you know, maybe I was off on, you know, what wind's right, and so I, a lot of times those first trips are are unsuccessful um but you you know you learn so much from them that you know it's it's all valuable um so yeah the the first trips most of the time we do cover a lot of ground and then return trips you know you kind of hone in on on the better locations um and as far as tree stands go um individual uh sections of climbing sticks um you know the little three foot sections and uh and hang on stands are are pretty much all all of us use um Climbers are a little cumbersome um, with camera gear, and ladder stands are too big to carry <laughs> uh, a lot of the places that we go. So, yeah. Have you ever had your stand stolen? I have, yeah, more than once, but it's uh, it's not fun. <laughs> uh, no. And we, you know, I try to use the the cheapest stands we can. You know, it'd be nice to have a bunch of really really nice stands and and be super comfortable the whole time, but. Um, you know they're just they same as the trail cameras. Um, it's it's bound to happen if you do it enough. So you know I I could say I guess tree stands are seem to not not to get us stolen as often as trail cameras. Trail cameras seem to walk away an awful lot. Um, but uh, but it does happen with tree stands too. Yeah, you know I don't know if I've if, Dan if I've told the story before, stop me. But speaking of just trail cameras getting stolen. Um, I had hung a trail camera. This actually wasn't on public land. This was on private land. Um, but what I had done is I had carved my name and phone number into the back of the trail camera and hung that trail camera. And I don't know, a week or two later, I went back to check for it and it was gone. I assumed at that point, you know, I, I didn't have any idea of who might be trespassing in the area or what might have been going on. I think I talked to the landowner about it and he didn't know anything or didn't know, hadn't seen anyone. So I kind of figured that camera was gone. Well, fast forward like two months or three months, I get a phone call from Cabela's. And they asked me, like, is your name Mark Kenyon? I'm like, well, yeah, it is. Um, and they said, well, we have your trail camera. Un- <laughs> unbelievably, whoever stole my camera brought it into Cabela's and returned it, got money for it. And Cabela's never realized that it was used and had my name and stuff on the back of it until, you know, like a week later. And they were, like, repackaging it, I guess. And then they saw that. So how crazy is that? I got my camera back. And uh, 
It was nuts. That, that, that is a wild story. <laughs> so. I had a, I had a situation uh, where I, I went back and I had three trail cameras um, on one 40 acre piece stolen. Ugh. And I was furious. I called the sheriff. I, I called the newspaper. I, <laughs> I'm not joking. I, I went on to every fa- every Facebook page in that area. I said, I'm oh. missing, you know, stolen ca- stolen trail camera. The sheriff came out. He walked the areas with me. I pointed out where they were. Um, I went to every house on that road and up and down, you know, in that area, you know, asking, hey, has anybody been on this and got to the right people. Well, I came back. Two weeks later, with a with another trail camera and a cable this time that I was going to put on, and all three trail cameras were back <laughs> at the bottom of the tree. So either they found out, hey, I know this guy, I don't want to steal his stuff, or hey, man, they this guy's looking, for, you know, this guy's looking for us, and there's a chance we get busted. I better put all this stuff back so it stops. Yeah, well. So luckily, I got it back. I did get a picture of the guy's ball cap in the top of this truck. So, because he was looking at the trail camera when he opened it up, <laughs> but I didn't see his face. So, it hasn't happened since, knock on wood. Wow. Well, that shows you the power of actually enforcing, you know, yeah. your, you know, the, whether it be your property borders or in this case, you know, the your physical property, you know, yeah. showing people that you're actually going to do something about it will will uh, sometimes pay off. So that's, that's a good story. Good right, le- yeah. it's, a, it's a parable of sorts, Dan. Thank you. Right. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> um, so this is kind of just popped in my head, and I've kind of talked about this to some people. Um, you know, Tyler, would you say that you get more satisfaction or excitement or enjoyment out of killing one of these public land deer? Let's say you kill a 125-inch buck on public land in Iowa and then you kill a 145 inch buck on private land somewhere in Iowa or Kansas or something. Would you value that public land buck or, or enjoy that experience more because it was on public? It's for the most part. Yes. I mean, there, there is, there's something special about it, you know, and it's not, you know, it's not that the deer's any, really any harder to kill, you know, once you're in the tree and you've done the homework, you know, cause he's, for the most part, you know, the places we hunt, he's in a, he's in a pocket that's, that's not going to get the hunting pressure. Like, uh, you know, like the, a lot of the he's more easily accessible public ground is. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, they are more rewarding just because of, you know, the amount of effort and, you know, work that goes into it. Um, you know, it, it does make it a little bit more special. So. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I could kind of, I can imagine that I, I have. I gotta think about this. I don't. Th- I've killed a. I've killed a buck on the border of public land. So you could. It came off of public land, and I shot it like two feet over the border on a private. So I might say I sort of killed a buck on public land, <laughs> but I don't know if I've fully experienced. You know, heavily pressured public. I've hunted plenty of it, but I haven't had that much success on it yet. So, um, but I can imagine how you would. Um, you know how that would mean something more in a different kind of way because of that challenge. So that's awesome. Now, 
you know, when you're, you mentioned the fact that you are looking for these areas where you can get away from the pressure, right? And I think that's, you know, one of the go-to kind of basic frameworks frameworks for having success in public land is, is get away from the pressure. Um, and you mentioned an example of, you know, finding a, a river or something that might block other people from getting to a section. Um, are there any other examples or, you know, can you elaborate on some more potential hot spots like that that someone might be able to look for? Is there anything else that someone can kind of clue into when they're looking at maps or when they're looking at property that might be the type of place that could keep out other hunting pressure or could be one of these little secret um, you know, honey holes? Uh, I mean, more than anything, distance. Um, you know, for the most part, people are lazy. Um, they don't want to walk that far, especially carrying a tree stand. Um, so it's just, it's that extra, you know, half mile, that extra three quarters of a mile. Um, and I mean, some places I've gone as far as printing a map out and measuring out, you know, how far three quarters of a mile is and using a compass and, uh, you know, actually making a circle around each public or each parking area, every access point. So you can see that's okay. That's where people are willing to walk to. And then you have the other areas and that's where you start to focus and, like I said, just, you know, just getting away from them, um, you know, all those different things you can use um, that you need to look at, uh, you know, the, the trail systems, the the parking areas, anything like that, um, it, you know, it's, it, it's all super valuable stuff. Um, and, you know, another tactic we've used, you know, a few times in the past is, is lakes and, you know, and even big rivers, actually putting a boat in. Um, to access some of these places and it, it's a lot of you know a lot of extra work uh, you know hauling a boat loading it up maybe going for an hour boat ride um, and then hiking in from there um, but it, it's something people don't think about and there was one day me and tony were in uh, in ohio two or three years ago launching a boat at you know four in the morning and there were some guys getting ready to go duck hunting there and they you know the look on their face was was just priceless you know, two guys with tree stands and camo and bows getting in a boat. And, you know, they had no, they just couldn't fathom what we could possibly have been doing. Um, you know, and we, we went in, it was about a 45-minute boat ride and access to, you know, through a reservoir. And, you know, we essentially had private land to hunt. Um, a lot of those places that are, you know, that are reservoirs, you know, they may be, you know, federally owned, state-owned, whatever they are. Um, there's a lot of it that is physically inaccessible you can't walk to it you know there's places that are totally landlocked by private and the only way to get to them from the public is on the water um you know so that's another thing people can look at if you have you know places like that where you live or you know where you hunt um it's the honestly the best way to really guarantee you're going to be left alone um the only other guy that may hunt it is you know, people that have access to that private ground that borders it, you know, obviously they can come onto the public. Um, but from a public hunting standpoint, you know, that, that boat's going to be the only access. So it's a, it's a really good tactic and whenever we can, you know, we use it. And those places are a lot of times overlooked too. You know, they may be, when you look at those, uh, you know, the pages from the state uh, that outline what the, what the public land area is good for, you know, it may be a, 4,000 acre, you know, piece and three quarters of maybe water. And, you know, they'll put on there, it's, it's ideal for bass fishing and for duck hunting. And, you know, there's not a, doesn't say anything about deer hunting on it. Um, 
because there's nowhere you can really walk to to deer hunt. So they they often get overlooked and and really don't get deer hunted at all. Um, it's they're they're kind of rare, but when you find one, they're they're definitely worth looking at. So. Yeah, that's an awesome point. It's something I've looked for a lot too in some of the different places where I've tried out public or been scouting out public is anytime I can find one of those spots that you can access by the water, like you said, just seems like an absolute money way to get into those hard to reach places. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. From a, from a strategy or, or tactic standpoint, do you address public different than private or vice versa? Um. I mean, I mean, as far as hunting in the tree, you know, I mean, it's all, once you're in, you're in, and it's all, you know, it's all kind of the same, you know, all kind of the same deal. Um, it's really, it's just all the scouting is what, you know, it's what's so much different. Um, you know, just like, just, it's all just getting away from, you know, from the other hunters. And uh, I, there's times when, you know, maybe you'll be a little bit more leery, you know, on the calls or something because those those deer maybe hurt them a little bit more. Um you know, same thing with using scent and decoys and stuff like that. Um, for the most part, you know, once once you're in and you feel like you're in one of those little those little pockets, um, I'm gonna hunt it just the same as you would anywhere. So, so you would still, while you might tone it back a little bit, you'd still call, rattle, try decoy things like that. Right, and I do. Too. You know, I do that a lot anyway. I'm probably a little bit more, I guess you could say, aggressive than 
maybe the average guy. Um, I like using decoys. I like calling. I like using scents. Um, so, you know, I probably still do it more than, you know, than the average guy that's on the public ground. Um, you know, that, that buck I shot this year in Iowa, um, you know, had scent out and, uh, you know, had the decoys out and that's, that's what got him killed. So he was actually paralleling us down, following the edge of the river and he saw those decoys and on a string he came. So can you tell us a little bit about that decoy setup too? Cause that was kind of unique. Yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> it was not a, not a, not a standard setup by any means. Um, where the base of the tree was, uh, where the set was at, we were actually in a washout. Um, and about five, eight yards from the base of the tree, there was a steep little incline that went up maybe 15 feet, um, you know, kind of on the, on the flat and went across for four or 500 yards, you know, just real flat, grassy stuff. And I had the decoys down in the, you know, what, what a traditional, I guess, decoy setup would be with the wind and whatnot. Um, down in that washout, um, the deer could see him from the from the river, but they couldn't see him from the other side of me where all this open grass and brush was at, and and that's honestly where we, where we'd see most of the deer was out in that out in that brush and, and tall grass. And the day before we when we were in there, uh, the deer just couldn't see those decoys down in that washout. So I actually put a buck decoy and a doe decoy five yards from the base of the tree in the wrong direction for the wind right on the lip of that where it got higher uh, just so those deer out in that grassy stuff could see them. Um, so um, it was it was a bit of a gamble, and that buck came in from the river and, and saw him, and he came right to us, um, you know, so it worked. But uh, it, it definitely was a little bit of a gamble. Um, but it was, it was tough finding trees down in there. Um, so we were kind of, we knew that's where we needed to be, but it definitely wasn't an ideal place to use a decoy. But you know, November ninth, I, I like using them. So yeah, I, yeah, it was pretty cool in the video. You could see that buck cruising, and then as soon as he saw those decoys, you could see him just lock on. His demeanor changed, came you know right in there. So that's pretty neat to to see that reaction. Um, you know, another thing related to that decoy, Tyler, is um. Yeah, I've been using decoys um, a little more the past two years than before, and I think anyone that's used a traditional decoy can relate to just the the how cumbersome they can be and loud and bulky. You know, walking in with one of these big plastic hollow decoys that makes a whole bunch of noise. And gosh, I've just about shot my thing up with a shotgun because I've been so frustrated with how loud and all that stuff. Um, now for you hunting these public land spots that are hard to get to using that kind of decoy seems, you know, tough to do. And you're, you're not using that kind of decoy. I think you're using one of the silhouette type decoys. Can you tell us about that kind of decoy and how you've seen that work? And if that's something that maybe other people might want to look into for, for public land or, or like long hikes and stuff. Yeah, we, yeah, we use, uh, we use the, the two-dimensional um, uh, decoys from Montana Decoy, and they are, uh, you know, they're for what we do, they're the only decoy that's going to work. Um, I've tried to use, you know, f- full-size traditional decoys in the past, and it, it's just not, you know, it's really not possible a lot of times. And when you do take them along, it's such a chore, you know, between, you know, tree stands and camera gear and, and whatnot, you know, trying to haul decoys along with it, it you almost need a you know another person to <laughs> to come along with you just to help you carry everything uh-huh. um so they just you know they won't work a lot of times and you know 
you can kick yourself. You know, I have in the past before we started using the you know the two dimensional decoys where you wish you had one, but you, you didn't have room to carry it, or it was just a little bit too big and too bulky, and uh, I'll you know you make the the lazy decision to leave it at the truck. Where um, the two dimensional decoys, you can fold them right up, you know, and stick them in your pack, and they don't take up any space, they don't weigh anything. Um, so you know they're they're great from that you know that aspect. Um, I know people get worried with them. You know, there's that blind spot when the deer is right in line with them where they they can't see them. Um, a lot of times, I'll you know really almost all the time I'll use two decoys. Um, I use a buck and a doe, or you know if it's just a you know maybe a, a mature buck and then a younger buck you know off to the side. Um, and I'll I offset them on on different angles. So really, no matter where a deer may approach from he's going to be able to lock onto one of those decoys. So, Okay. That's good to know. That's definitely something I think I want to try because I, I'm i just getting frustrated some of these places that I try to access. You just can't, like you said, you can't get in there with a traditional decoy. So the um, those two-dimensionals offer some really interesting options for that kind of hunt. For sure. So we're getting here pretty close on time, Tyler, but... I'm wondering if you can mine the archives of your past hunts and maybe share with us one public land hunting story that maybe was an experience that, you know, really helped you learn an important lesson about public land hunting or was your most memorable public land hunt. Is there anything that comes to mind, um, you know, along those lines? Oh, there's, there's a million stories I could tell. That's for sure. (laughs) It seems like there's always, you know, something interesting that happens. Um, be it the, you know, the, the hunt on public ground itself or, you know, or just the out of state trip. Um, you know, there, there's always so many fun, funny stories to go along with them. Um, I don't know, I guess as far as the most memorable, probably the first year, um, that Adam Millard and I went to Kansas would have been four years ago, I believe. Um, we killed bucks out of the same tree stand, uh, two nights apart. And that was... That that was a pretty cool one. So it was Adam's first ever out of state hunt. Um, his uh, his first ever time in Kansas. I'd been there the year prior. Um, yeah, it was that was pretty neat. It was pretty special. So I bet. And uh, if you were able to put that Yahoo on a big buck, I'd say you were doing something right. <laughs> yeah. Anybody that knows Adam Millard knows. <laughs> knows he's he is one of a kind. Uh, he is uh, he's a good dude to hunt with for sure. Yeah. So. That's awesome. So, really quick, what was the what was that setup? Where did you guys find that worked for you guys out there? That was a uh, that was an early season hunt. That was uh, that was September. Uh, it was there. Kansas has a, an early muzzleloader season opens the uh, same time the archery season opens. And Adam had a muzzleloader tag, and I had a bow tag. And out there in Kansas, where we go, it's it's wide open. Um, the only place there's trees is in the in the creek bottoms and the key to the whole thing is just finding food out there. Um, it's it's pretty sparse, but when you find it, uh, you'll normally find the deer. Um, and then you got to find the find a place that's got food and a place that somebody else isn't hunting. Um, but yeah, it was just a you know, it was just a classic kind of early season setup. Um, alfalfa field and uh, right on the creek bottom. And Adam shot his buck with the muzzleloader, and then uh, two nights later, I shot uh, a real nice ten point. So come right up out of the creek. So it was uh that was a fun one for sure. So yeah, that sounds like it. It was a made for some cool video too. I saw some of that. So 
That's awesome. Um, Dan, before we close things up, is there anything else you want to uh, grill Tyler about, or should we wrap this show up? No, man, uh, unless he wants to tell me where he's exactly where he's hunting in Iowa. <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> I've, I've, I've worked too hard on that place, so I uh, yeah. try to keep her quiet. Yeah, I can, uh, uh, I can understand so that. So you said you got one more hunt uh, in Indiana you're going to be uh, trying to get it done in? Yep, yep, one more hunt. Uh, it'll be with a, with a muzzleloader um, in, in Indiana, and that'll be uh, – the middle of the month and uh, place we've never hunted so it's uh it'll be an adventure and uh you know it's those like i said earlier those first year you know first year trips um you know to new places uh, it's it's just the, the really the intel that you learn um that you know that's that's so valuable um i and i get it like a lot of people ask me about you know hunting out of state hunting public ground and I tell people for the most part, don't expect to shoot a deer for the first two trips. You know, if you do, you get lucky. So, cause it's, I, you know, unless you have a month, <laughs> uh, like my one special instance, uh, where you really get to learn a place, um, you know, it, it takes you a couple of times when you're only there for, you know, five days, 10 days, maybe, it, you know, it takes you a long time to, you know, to figure it out and a couple of years of, you know, of good intel from the tree and learning what the deer do and how they use that particular piece of ground and what the other hunters are doing. So, um, if we don't kill the third year, then uh, you start getting a little disappointed and, you know, looking for somewhere else to go maybe. But, uh, yeah, yeah, that, that first year hunt is always, a always just a a learning lesson more than anything. So we're hoping to, hoping it'll be a good one. Maybe we'll get lucky and shoot a buck and I'm, I'm sure it'll be a place that we'll, we'll be back to, uh, you know, next year and years after. So, well, good we, luck, man. Yeah, we wish you luck, and I'll be thank hopefully. Thank you guys, too, with the, the rest of your seasons. Thank you, thank you, Tyler. And real quick before we let you go, if people want to see more from the Antler Geeks or see your you know, your uh, your iPad magazine, all that kind of stuff, where can people go to see the Antler Geek stuff? Um, check us out on Facebook. Um, really, everything's there. Um, just search Antler Geeks. Um, like I said, we've got the the web show on Realtree.com, and always got a lot going on our YouTube channel. Um, and then the the publication is uh, it's for iOS uh, formats, and uh, you can just search Antler Geeks in the newsstand, and uh, it's pretty cool. Um, really interactive, and like I said, it's all it's all focused on DIY whitetails. So. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I um, I would agree with you, Tyler. You've got some really cool stuff going on, so I definitely would encourage all of our listeners to check out Antler Geeks. And, Tyler, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a good chat, as always. Yep, thank you, guys. All right, have a good one, Tyler. Yep, we'll talk to you. Bye. All right, well, I think that's going to do it for us here today on the Wired to Hunt podcast. But before we go, Dan, I believe you had a little announcement you wanted to share with our listeners. Is that right? That's right. All right, so, you know, me and Mark have been uh, pretty big believers in Ozonics, and I actually talked with a guy from Ozonics, and he sent me a couple units. Well, I don't, there's no need for me to have two of them, so what we're going to do here is we're going to do a little Ozonics giveaway. So if you're listening to this podcast, and I know Mark's going to have a link on the show notes, and uh, he's going to make a post on his Facebook page, um, where, where what you need to do is you need to go to the Nine Finger Chronicles. You need to like the, the page altogether. You need to like the post, 
the Ozonix giveaway post. And then what I'll do is I'll cross-reference those names to make sure that you're not only um, following and liking Wired to Hunt, but you're also following and liking the Nine Finger Chronicles. And there will be uh, instructions on there as well what you need to do. But what we're going to do is we're going to give away an Ozonix, and we're going to announce that name on next week's podcast. Um, and there's, oh, there's a couple uh, other little accessories that go along with it that they sent me. And, um, and this is like a, a four to $500 uh, giveaway. So if you haven't used an Ozonix before, you need to sign up for this and uh, potentially win it. Then you can use it, and then you can tell us how well they work next deer hunting season or even later this deer season, depending on what state you hunted. Um, and then I think a couple – the next week after that, we're going to have a giveaway for um, some products from Stick and Pick, a company, and I know the owner of that very well, and he's all for giving away free product. And I think, Mark, you're going to have some some free products uh, from uh, some of your sponsorship from Wired to Hunt. And, uh, it's just a a good way to, uh, get some free gear. So, uh, um, if you're a part of that giveaway, it's going to be not only, you know, get some exposure to myself and Mark and whatnot, but, uh, um, we're going to give away some, some gear that, you know, especially in Ozonics, man, they're not, they're not necessarily cheap, but we, we know they work. So, uh, sign up for it, like it, uh, and uh, we'll have more details on the show notes and uh, on the Facebook page as well. So yeah, yeah, I think it's uh, it's a cool way that that we can you know, give back to all of you listeners as a little Christmas thank you present for making this such an awesome first year for the Wired Hunt podcast. And so, um, like Dan said, he's going to have a few more things coming in the next week or so. I'm also going to be giving away some free gear in the following weeks, and we're just going to keep the free stuff flowing up until Christmas. And so for those of you listening in the future, um, we are, this podcast is going live on December 4th, 2014. So if you're listening this week of December 4th through the next seven days, like you said, go to um, either wiredhunt.com slash episode 34, where there will be a link and, and instructions on this that will take you back to Dan's Facebook page, which is the nine finger chronicle. So go there, you'll get all the details you need. And, um, one of you will get an Ozonics, and like Dan said, you can try it out. And either you're going to see that it works like we've been saying it does, or you're going to you know, email us and say we're idiots. But either way, give it a shot. Hope you enjoy it. And um, thank you, Dan, for, for donating that to one of our listeners. Yeah, no problem. I just It's one of those things, man. It's one of those products that you know, we're not the type of people who brag about. You know, We're not product-driven. We're going to tell you how we really feel about something. And... Uh, these guys sent me some free stuff, so I don't have any need for two of them. So I figure I'm going to give uh, give one away. I think that's pretty awesome. Well, I think that will do it for us, though, Dan. For today, we've been we've been John for a pretty good amount here. So, as I always like to say, with that said, as always, for all of you listening. If you've enjoyed this show, we really do appreciate you taking time to leave a rating or review on iTunes. I've been saying this every week for you know the past six months, and a lot of you have been taking me up on it and leaving reviews. I've gotten 117 ratings or reviews so far, which is incredible. So thank you so much. We really appreciate it, and it just makes such a big difference. So can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I also just want to say thank you to all of you that send emails and Facebook messages and 
um, notes on Twitter and everything. Yeah, it means the world. And it's so great to hear that, you know, this show is resonating with you and that you're enjoying it and that's helping you. Um, it makes all the time and effort that we put into it so worthwhile. So thank you. And I'm just thrilled to hear that. Um, as I mentioned earlier, be sure to visit wiretohunt.com slash episode 34 for all the information me and Dan just talked about with the giveaway, as well as links back to all the Antler Geeks content that Tyler talked about and anything else that we might have mentioned. So be sure to check that out. And finally, we'd like to thank our partners who help make this show possible. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Carbon Express Arrows, Huntsoft, Lacrosse Boots, Big and J Long Range Attractants, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. Thank you so much to all of you for joining us here today. Good luck in the weeks to come. Keep hunting hard, regardless of how cold it is, and stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.